Good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. We are in a series, yes? We've been going through uh, some, some frameworks, some lenses, some paradigms, ways of looking at the world uh, that Jesus seemed to, uh, to use, to utilize uh, for his own life on this planet. So we're, we're calling this series This Sacred Life because um, for Jesus, everything was sacred space. Everywhere he went, every interaction he had, every conversation, um, not just the healings and the miracles, but the gravesides um, and those that were in need of help uh, was fertile ground for what God was doing because God was always present and at work through Jesus. So we've been looking at um, eight of these uh, statements that are, are teasing out the way that Jesus looked at the world. We're using a book called Having the Mind of Christ by Matt Tebby and Ben Sternkey, um, which talks about these eight paradigms. And we're doing uh, some learning communities to tease these things as well, to discuss them and dive deeper. Uh, so they're happening every week on Zoom on Tuesdays at 8 o'clock, and they're happening every other Friday. So we just had our first one of those this past Friday. Um, and the next one's going to be on the 7th. So if you're going to mark your calendars, we will see you... Um, October 7th at 6.30. But I'll give you more about that when we get closer. So if you remember the first week, we talked about the first truth of the sacred life is that life is all about communion with God. Becoming one with God and with each other. This is the goal of life. Last week, we built on that by saying that this God who has restored communion with us is always present and at work in every circumstance of our lives, no matter what. And this week, we're going to build further on, on that foundation by asking, what is this God who is present at work like? What is He like? Who is He? What is His character? Because it's one thing to say that God is present and at work, but what if the God that we encounter who is present with us isn't the God we want? Do you ever think about that? It's one thing to say God is present and at work, but if God is a demanding judge or a tyrant or a despot, who wants that kind of God to be next to us, near us, with us, right? If he's going to judge, if he's going to control, if he's going to manipulate, we, we tend not to like those people around us. So we need a picture of what God is actually like, this God who is present and at work. Jesus said uh, this to his disciples who were wondering about what God was like uh, as well, in John 14, uh, verse 7. I'm sorry, the verses are not on the screen. So if you want to follow along, you've got to look it up um, or find it in the Bibles in the seats. But you can, you can listen, and I'll try to, I'll try to share it well. Uh, John 14, verses 7 and 10, Jesus says, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him, Jesus says. Philip, one of the disciples, said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. Like, have you got access to what God is really like? Just like, you, you seem to be you know, the kind of guy who can do a lot of magic tricks. Like, hey, just manifest them to us and, and we'll be cool with that. And Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Um, 
later, Paul, who is a church planter and apostle, uh, he's writing a letter to the church that he knows well in Philippi, talking about the nature of what God is like, this God who we know through Jesus, that Jesus said, if you want to know the Father, you look at me. And this is what Paul says about Jesus, that that in our relationships with each other, we are to have the mind of Christ. And then he goes on in this poem and says in verse 6 of Philippians 2, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the good news that we proclaim today is that God is just like Jesus. Yesterday, today, and forever. In the cross, Jesus shows us the fullness of who God has always been and always will be. Not a despot who uses his status to his own advantage, but a father who pours himself out for us. Not a tyrant who comes to dominate us, but a servant who humbles himself and dies for his enemies. Jesus is the true and final picture of who God is and the pattern of our life together in the Spirit. Friends, gaze upon him. Drink him in and allow the light of his face to dispel the old images and reveal who God is for you today. Um, I've used this analogy before about a year ago. So if you're if you remember a year ago, congratulations, and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, uh, I, if, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you'll know this immediately, and if not, play along, okay? Um, Harry Potter. If you know anything about Harry Potter, if you've seen the movies, if you've read the books, Harry's the hero, right? He is a young wizard attending wizarding school, and um, one of the professors that Harry has is a professor named Severus Snape. You remember him? Professor Snape. Um, and early in the books, through, throughout much of them, he, he's a constant thorn in Harry's side. He seems to be out to get Harry at every single turn. And it comes to light that Severus isn't just grumpy, but he's a spy for the evil Lord Voldemort. And this causes Harry great pain. Harry, in fact, hates Snape. He feels betrayed by him and his friend, who, who's betrayed him, his friends, and Dumbledore, the, the headmaster. And the whole series of uh, the movies is leading up to an epic battle between Harry and Voldemort. And Voldemort wants to wield uh, the power of this particular magic wand. And in order to do so, he has to kill Snape in order to get this power. And so he has his pet snake bite um, the professor, and he leaves Snape to die. And that's where Harry finds him. He walks over and sees this man that he hates. He hates this man. But as he gets to him, Snape grabs Harry by the robe, and he says, 
take it. And some like um, silvery, smoky liquid. I don't know why it's, it looks this way. It's a magic book. Just play along. Um, it starts coming out of the professor, right? And Harry is not sure what he means by this, but it turns out that it's, this liquid is the contents of Snape's memories, and he wants Harry to look at them. And so Harry collects them in a flask, and Snape ends up dying. In the story, uh, the way that you see someone else's memories is that you take them and you pour them into a bowl called a pensive. And then you put your face in the bowl, and you're able to see the memories that this person has extracted from their mind. I know, we're off the deep end this morning. This is just how it works in the wizarding world of Harry Potter. Um, so, so Harry goes to Dumbledore's office, and he pours the memories into the pensive, and he puts his face in. And as he views Snape's memories, Harry realizes that he has been completely and utterly wrong about this man. Rather than being a nemesis at school and an agent of Voldemort, he learns that Snape was actually protecting Harry the whole time, acting as a double agent against Voldemort in order to save him. As, as Harry sees these memories, he discovers that whenever he thought Snape was being absent or working against him, he realizes he was actually working for me, protecting me, guiding me the whole time. Harry thought that Snape hated him as much as he hated Snape. But the truth was that Snape cared deeply for Harry and was constantly putting himself in danger on his behalf. He thought he knew who this man was, but the truth set him free. So I, I tell this story because the way that we view God often works in a very similar way. All of us have uh, pictures of who we think God is, and we don't uh, think about these pictures um, primarily with our intellect. We know all the right answers to the question, who is God? But all of us carry around in our bones perceptions of what God is like based on our experiences, pictures that come to us from things that our parents told us or ways that they responded to us or didn't respond to us. Things that our pastors or priests told us or showed us. The way that we were treated by authority figures in our lives. These things get stored in us. Our bodies have memories about the ways that we've interacted with people that we consider above us. And these, these images, these pictures, end up getting embedded into our lives. And they, they come out in the way that we not just think about God, but the way that we emotionally connect to and relate with God. They have a drastic impact on the stories that we tell ourselves about what God is like, especially when bad things happen to us. That God is punishing us or punishing them or I must have done something to mess up and now God is mad at me. We tell ourselves stories that imply God's character in a way that we're not always completely conscious of. Sometimes we're, we're reading through the Bible like we're supposed to do as good Christians, and we come across a passage where God seems to be um, absent or controlling or um, 
furious and doing things to people that no God should do. And we think, what in the world is God like? And because many of us carry around a picture of a God who doesn't care because of this, a God who isn't involved, a God who loses his temper, a God with a mood disorder, a God who lashes out when he doesn't get his way, or perhaps just a God who's out to get us, like Snape was out to get Harry. A God who must be appeased with our good behavior and our right doctrine. Again, we come by these images honestly. None of us meant to construct a God that looks anything like these things. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Um, that the God that we imagine is the God that we live with. Whatever we picture God like, for good or for ill, even if it's not true, that's our experience of God. The God we imagine is the God that we live with and is the God that we imitate to other people. But the good news today, friends, is that God is just like Jesus. Yesterday, today, and forever. And the cross shows us what this God is really like. A God who is, uh, is and always will be. Not a despot who uses his status to his own advantage, but a father who pours himself out for us. Not a tyrant who comes to dominate, but a servant who humbles himself and dies for his enemies. Jesus is the fullness of God, the true and final picture of what God has always been like. So friends, gaze upon him. Drink him in today. Allow the light of his face to dispel all the old images and the old stories. Um, we looked at, uh, or I read uh, Philippians 2. And um, Philippians is, a, is an interesting letter. It's written, I said, by the Apostle Paul, who's writing from prison. So things probably aren't going fantastic at least for him. But he's also writing to this little church who's uh, struggling with quite a lot. They're dealing with opposition from Roman authorities. They are, some of them are suffering deeply, and there's vast internal conflict that's happening within the church. Things aren't going according to plan. And so um, you can imagine for a community that is small, oppressed, persecuted, divided. It's easy to imagine them asking the question, how in the world is God present at work in this? How is he really with us? Wouldn't he be doing something different than what we're seeing? Why are we still suffering? Why is Paul in prison? Why do we keep having so many problems? And into these tensions, Paul urges them, don't be embarrassed by my imprisonment. Don't, don't be shocked or upset by your own suffering. Because disciples of Jesus often find themselves in trouble. Jesus himself found his way into a lot of trouble. And to illustrate what he's saying, he gives them this poem that we read in, verse, in chapter 2 that describes the shocking journey of Jesus. This is the God that they follow. He says Jesus was God, yes, in very nature, but he defied our expectations by emptying himself, by pouring himself out, by making himself nothing, by taking 
all the advantages that he could have grasped at by being God himself, and he laid all of them aside. Jesus pours himself out as God. And as a man, he humbles himself in obedience. All the way to death on a cross. He took on the the pain of that experience and also the shame of that experience. And Paul reminds them, "This this is the God that they serve, the God that they know. This is what God is like. This is the God who's present and at work when you're going through suffering yourself. This is the God who's active when you don't think that he's active at all. And the reason that it's shocking, or, or should, if we're, if we're thinking rightly about it, should shock us, is because it's not the God that they or we would have expected Jesus to bring us. They and we, I think, assume that if God is going to be God, then that means that God is powerful, asserting, grasping, dominant, controlling, God, if he's God, he kicks butts and takes names. This is who we imagine God to be. We expect and often want a God who will use his godness to his own advantage and to ours, thank you very much. Right? A God who will make our suffering go away and make our enemies pay. A God who will throw his weight around. A God who's going to do stuff to stuff. Paul says, though, that the shocking revelation is that Jesus shows us what God is really like. And what God has always been like. That this God is a God who empties himself, pours himself out, makes himself nothing, humbles himself and becomes a servant to all, even dying for his enemies. And this self-emptying humiliation is not just a temporary thing that Jesus does before going back to being God. It's not as if He says, I'm going to go and do this cross thing and then I'm going to get back to kicking butt. Some of us read the book of Revelation that way, in fact. No, the cross is the permanent revelation of who God is. Jesus on the cross is the eternal picture of how God has always been. John 14, which we read, when Jesus says to his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Whatever I'm doing is revealing what the Father is doing and who the Father is. And yes, Jesus is exalted to the highest place. Philippians 2 says that. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But that's not something different than the self-emptying God on the cross. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that this Jesus, the crucified one, is Lord. No other God, no other Jesus. There's a continuity, in other words, between the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus. The one who is lifted up is the one who has nail-scarred hands and feet forever. This is who God always will be. Always. 
Jesus remains the crucified one even in his resurrection. He remains the humble servant even now, today, with you. Um, In the book, Matt and Ben say it this way, the New Testament affirms that the cross of Jesus is not just one revelation of God among many, but the final, definitive revelation of God. After the cross, all other standings of God are henceforth rendered either incomplete, obsolete, or idolatrous. God's love looks like the cross of Christ and is emptied of privilege, presumptive power, and coercion. In other words, now that we see Jesus on the cross, we know who God is. It's almost as if we have a pensive through which we can see God's memories. We have a way for us to see what's really going on, even in those past experiences that have hurt us. Even in those past experiences with people who claim to represent God and hurt us. Through him we see what's really happening in our lives. That in the cross, Jesus shows us the fullness of God, that he has, in fact, been working to protect us and guide us the whole time, that he's cared more deeply for us than we could have possibly imagined before. The good news today is that Jesus shows us this God, who he is and who he's always been, not a despot who uses his power to his own advantage, but a father who's poured out for us, not a tyrant who comes to dominate, but a servant who humbles himself and dies for his enemies. And Jesus isn't just the true and final picture of who God is, but he's now the pattern of our life together in the Spirit. That God is just like Jesus, and God has always been just like Jesus. And there was never a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. This is who our God is. All right, so how do we respond? How do we respond? Um, First, Paul says that we can have the mind of Christ. That it's ours in Christ. So, pouring ourselves out for one another, humbling ourselves to serve one another. Paul brings up this um, idea of what God is like, not just to fact check the Philippians on God's nature. He's not just saying, hey, your theology's off and you're going to get bad grades on the next exam. No, he's encouraging them to imitate this God that he's showing them. Not to get brownie points with God, but so that we can participate with God, so that we can see him correctly. Because we're now invited into the very life of the Father through the Spirit as we imitate Jesus together with one another. Jesus shows us what God is really like. But he shows us what it's really like to be human, too. And in showing us what God is like, he shows us what it's like to be human. And God doesn't just show us, but he gives us a way to join him in that life with the Father. And so we we don't just imitate him from afar and hope that we're doing a good job. We don't do it because we're trying to get a gold star on our report card. No, we We imitate God because as we do so, God himself comes and communes with us. We get to step into a new way of life together. 
And so I think the first way to respond is to humbly ask ourselves, how can we take the role of a servant? Where do I have the opportunity to experience the life of God? By pouring myself out. By humbling myself to serve. Not because you must, but because you get to. You get to participate in the life that God wants to give you. And I realize, like, even in asking that question, to take on the nature of a servant is to become vulnerable. That's what Jesus did. And so it doesn't feel like good news to say, I'm going to become someone's servant. Like, that never sounds like the right way. There must be some other answer on the test, right? Because it feels risky to humble ourselves, to empty ourselves, to become vulnerable. We feel like we need to hold on to our status, to not get too embarrassed, to not overdo it. But to do so is to miss out on the very life of God. So where is God calling you to pour yourself out? And in doing so, participate in his very life. That's first. Second, um, God is present and at work, which means he's here this morning. And so we access God's memories. We access the pensive of what God is actually like through prayer. Through prayer. Prayer isn't just throwing up words into the air and hoping that they stick. Prayer is communing with the God who is present with us. And so we're going to do that together. We're going to gaze on Jesus, and we're going to ask him to remove any false images that we have of what God's like. In other words, let's ask Jesus to be our pensive today, to look into him and see God's memories and thoughts towards us. And let's allow Jesus to overrule every other picture of God, every picture that we've inherited from our upbringing, every picture that we thought we were seeing when we read the Bible, all the stuff that we thought God was doing when, when tragedy struck our family, when things didn't go the way that we thought they should. Let's pray that Jesus would free us from all the stories we tell ourselves about who God is in those memories. And instead, let's allow the cross of Christ to show us that God is indeed present with us in these things and participating with our suffering. I was talking to John about this before, um, before we, we began this morning, that because of the cross, God is eternally connected and participating in the suffering of every single living thing. He sees it and feels it from the inside. That's who God is. And so Jesus reveals a God who co-suffers alongside the world that he loves. He doesn't come in to manipulate and manage and coerce. He comes in to see and experience and participate. So let's allow that vision to override any other story. And then we'll come together at the table to receive this God anew. Let me say it again, friends, that the good news that we proclaim today is that in the cross, Jesus shows us the fullness of who God has always been and always will be. He is not a despot who uses his status to his own advantage, but a father who pours himself out, 
not a tyrant who comes to dominate, but a servant who humbles himself and dies for his enemies and makes them his friends. Jesus is the true and final picture of who God is and the pattern of our life together. So friends, today, let's gaze upon him. Let's drink him in. Let's allow the light of his face to dispel the old images and reveal who God is for you today. Let's pray. Father, we... um, We open ourselves up to you in prayer. And as we do so, we realize that we come before you, to you. We come into your presence, uh, carrying with us so many ideas and pictures and stories about what you're like. Some true and some not. We're often our... um, misconceptions about what you're like are revealed to us as we go through things that um, cause us to suffer or to question or to doubt. Those are the times when our perception and reality don't match. So God, would um, would you identify places where we are off the mark places where we have um, projected upon you things that you are not. And those, God, we thank you that in your grace we, um, we have not come up with those images because that's the God that we've wanted oftentimes. It's just the God that we feel like was there. So would you override and overrule all those pictures, Lord? when we think of you, when we experience you, would our hearts be full of what you said would be present when you're at work, which is peace and joy and love, acknowledgement, connection. Lord Jesus, come and have your way in us and with us. We pray. Amen.